Welcome to the 228th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion in partnership with the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest of Villanova University. We'll be talking about documenting the pandemic with Erica Hayes and Beaudry Allen. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live, Twitch, and Periscope. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 25th, 2021, there are 2,503,390 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 507,465 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. And the state of Pennsylvania reports 23,910 as it's part of that total. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, families are turning obituaries into final pleas to avoid COVID-19. This was written by Chris Majerian and was published December 26, 2020 in the Washington Post. When Pamela Cadell died of COVID-19 in December, there was no funeral. Her family knew that as a former nurse, she wouldn't want anyone else to be exposed to the disease. But there was still something her husband, Richard, wanted to say, needed to say. So he sat down in his empty house to write her obituary. After honoring her decades in medicine and listing her surviving relatives, he included a plea to anyone who picked up the Courier and Press in Evansville, Indiana. Pam died of COVID-19, Richard wrote. It was her fervent wish that everyone take this horrible disease seriously. This was her last wish to all people. Richard may not have known it, but the obituary for his wife belongs to a growing genre that dates back to the summer of 2020. At the time, President Trump and his Republican allies were pushing to keep businesses open and downplaying the possibility of a deadly second wave of infections. Now with a third wave overwhelming hospitals across the country, this article appeared in December as a reminder, Americans are increasingly turning their private grief into public calls for action as the COVID-19 death toll grows by thousands each day. There have been some efforts to turn the obituaries into a more coordinated activist campaign, but for many it's a decision they reach on their own, a reflection of their own frustration, anger, and pain. A lot of people knew my wife, Richard said. Her message was to take it seriously, everybody, take it seriously, and there's a lot of people that I'm afraid they don't. They listen to the wrong person. Richard and Pamela met when they were teenagers, and she was a car hop at a root beer stand. They got married when he was 21, she was 18, and they had a son, 
and a daughter. Although Pamela retired from nursing years ago, she helped care for her sister, Debbie, who had become ill with lung cancer. Somehow, Debbie contracted the coronavirus and died, and Pamela got sick too. Four days after testing positive, she turned to Richard shortly after midnight. It's time. I'm ready to go. Call the ambulance, she said. Pamela lingered in the hospital for nearly a month, including weeks on a ventilator before she died November 27th. She was 71. They would have been married for 53 years in March. Now it's just Richard, age 74, and Harry, the couple's 14-year-old pug. I've never lived alone before in my whole life, Richard said, and it's not easy adjusting. Richard wrote about his wife's selflessness in her obituary. She never took away from people, and her greatest satisfaction was helping people. She was happiest when she saw the smiles from all the people in her life. That's the type of person Pam was, Richard said, and people should know that, and she should not be dead. She should be alive. It took a month before Paul Garvison was ready to write an obituary for his father, John. There was a lot of anger, he said. It didn't need to be this way. John was 95 and had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, so his family knew that an infection could prove fatal. But when he did contract the virus, he seemed to improve after a week-long hospitalization, and Paul drove him back to his nursing home in Virginia. The recovery didn't last. When Paul visited him again, he had to wear a protective suit, face covering, gloves, and goggles. I'm not sure he recognized me by then, Paul said. John died on November 5th. Paul decided to place the obituary in Santa Cruz, where his father had worked for the county, establishing a program for placing and caring for adopted children. His death was due to neglect of the vulnerable by the Trump administration, which has consistently downplayed the dangers of this terrible disease, the obituary said. Due to isolation requirements to prevent the spread of the virus, his family was not able to be with him, the obituary read. Paul said he wanted the world to know that the virus isn't something that just happens to other people. You hear a lot of I don't know anybody who really has it, he said. Well, now you do. Now you know somebody who's died of it. Most obituaries run in a local newspaper or are posted on a funeral home website. They typically circulate just among friends and family, but occasionally one goes viral, which is what happened when Courtney Farr wrote about his father, Marvin. Marvin was living in a nursing home in Scott City, Kansas, and he became the fourth resident to test positive in an outbreak that began shortly before Thanksgiving. His son could only say goodbye through a video call from his phone. Courtney had studied journalism as a college student and he relied on that training as he wrote about Marvin's death on December the 1st. He died in a room not his own, being cared for by people dressed in confusing and frightening ways, he wrote. He died with COVID-19 and his final days were harder, scarier, and lonelier than necessary. He was not surrounded by friends and family. Then Courtney poured out his frustration at the lack of a communal response to the pandemic. He wrote, He was born into an America recovering from the Great Depression and about to face World War II. Times of loss and sacrifice difficult for most of us to imagine. Americans would be asked to ration essential supplies and send their children around the world to fight and die in wars of unfathomable destruction. He died in a world where many of his fellow Americans refused to wear a piece of cloth on their face to protect one another. The obituary ricocheted across the internet, and Courtney soon found himself speaking about his father to journalists from cable news and public radio. Every day, one or two letters or cards show up at his house, 
often from healthcare workers, are people who've also lost a loved one due to the virus. His Facebook page has been flooded with comments. My mother died in much the same way of COVID in April 2020, and I have felt the same frustration and anger towards people who continue to say it's their decision to wear a mask and they think the virus is a hoax, one person wrote. Every time I hear that, I want to scream. My mother died alone in a nursing home in August, wrote another, sending love and prayers, it wrote. Sometimes the response has been overwhelming, but Courtney said he's come to understand why his father's obituary struck such a chord. Just to read something or see someone who feels like they understand where you are, it can be so powerful. It relieves that loneliness element of it, he said. If that's the only thing that comes from it, then all of this was worth it. I'd mentioned that this piece, which I'm going to post on Twitter, also includes uh, some quotes from Kristen Urquiza, who's been a uh, guest twice on COVID calls and is the founder of Marked by COVID. And it discusses her obituary of her father as well. Okay, let's turn to the discussion for today. And it's a continuation of my discussions with LePage grant winners. I'm really excited to talk to my guests and let me introduce them to you. Beaudry Ray Allen is the digital and preservation archivist at Villanova University. He holds a master's in archives and records management from San Jose State University and a master's in European history from Villanova University. In addition, she's deeply involved with the local Philadelphia archives community by serving on the organizing committee of archives for black lives in Philadelphia and the DEI committee for PAXL, which is an acronym for Philadelphia Area Consortium of Special Collections Libraries. Let me also introduce Erica Hayes. Erica Hayes is a digital scholarship librarian at Villanova University where she coordinates the Falvey Memorial Library's Digital Scholarship Program and collaborates with faculty and students on digital research projects. Prior to joining Villanova University, she was a North Carolina State University Libraries Fellow and the project manager on the Immersive Scholar Andrew W. Mellon Foundation grant. She holds a Master of Information Science and a Master of Library Science dual degree from Indiana University of Bloomington with a specialization in digital libraries. Audrey and Erica, thanks so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you. I'd like to start out the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and the pandemic situation there. And even though you both may be in the greater Philadelphia metro region, it's still great to even hear about localities within that region. So uh, Erica, could I start with you, please? Yeah, so I'm located in Wayne, Pennsylvania, in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Um, it's about 15 minutes away from Villanova. And um, the pandemic situation looks pretty much the same as it has for a long time. Um, the vaccinations in Pennsylvania are very slow, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that's been my experience so far. What would be the... Um what would I see if I was driving through Wayne or walking on the streets today? Are people out shopping? They're, they're masked? They're following yes, social distancing? They, or what's it look yes, like? Yes, they are. Um, mm. Yeah, fortunately. Um, most of the time when I've been out and about, although my husband and I are predominantly staying at home as much as possible, 
Um, and actually, we're still we're trying to play it safe and we're still getting groceries delivered. But when we have gone on walks, uh, generally, uh, the public uh, community here is following protocol and social distancing and wearing masks. And you're working from home primarily? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Beaudry, let me bring you in. Same question. Calling from where? I'm calling from Philadelphia in the city um, where restrictions are slowly lifting and cases have gone down, though the city is still considered high risk of community transmission. The city, I would say, still has a lot of political issues around COVID whether or not to return to in-person teaching for K through 12 um, with teachers that have not been vaccinated yet. And while the city like has greatly fumbled the vaccine year, they are trying to move forward with a rollout. I'm really happy to see that the Black Doctors Consortium is being successful with a vaccine program to reach out to our marginalized communities in the city who are overwhelmingly our essential workers. That Black Doctors Project is extraordinary and um, we've invited a couple of representatives from that project to come on COVID calls. I do hope they'll, they'll join me uh, in the next month or two. Well, thank you to both of you for that, um, those updates from where, from where you are. And it's not surprising to hear that in a metro region as big and diverse as Philadelphia, the experience will be diverse as Mm -hmm. as well. Let's start pretty generally. I guess I'd like to hear about your experience working in or perhaps out of the library during the pandemic. Um, Erica, let me start with you on this. Just take us back to, um, I guess it would be March probably for you, when things were closing down. What was that like? How did you adjust your work life? Yeah, so uh, we were all pretty much uh, since home right away and had to switch completely to providing our, uh, you know, library services online. So I, I work in the uh, research services and scholarly engagement department at Falvey Memorial Library, uh, where we provide, you know, consultations and instructions on our library resources for faculty and students. And so we had to quickly switch over to teaching everything on Zoom and um, learning all the different functionalities, you know, sharing screens, how to use the annotation tool, how to use breakout rooms. So we all, like a lot of faculty at other institutions, had to learn Zoom very quickly and other online platforms to continue our instruction. Is that something you were already the point person for that? If there was a faculty member that wanted to do significant online component with instruction, you were a person they'd reach out to for that? Uh, no. So um, in my role, I mean, I do teach a lot of workshops and different dif different digital tools, but I'm not uh, the point person for um, online teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, it was something that, you know, while I had worked a lot with Zoom before, um, it, I had to learn a lot about the different um, functionalities of the platform as well. So it, it was, I was definitely not the point person for it. What you've just described must resonate for many, many people across the country who are in the information workspace who all of a sudden had to become a Zoom master within basically overnight. Uh, Baudry, to you, same question. What was your sort of immediate experience like of transitioning your work into accommodating the pandemic? Yeah, it was kind of interesting that the announcement that Villanova was going to close was the day that I actually had a opening event for a physical exhibit 
and it was going to be the celebration of a hundred years of theater on campus. And so the food had been ordered, the presentation was ready, and we had to cancel it. So all the staff got to have a really nice lunch um, because of it. So it kind of happened right at a pivotal moment for the archives in that we were just about to open a exhibit that we had spent six months on creating. And I would even say like, as an archivist, I work in and with materials of an archive. So working from home has meant that I'm physically detached from the materials that I need to do my job. And it's really greatly affected like research services to the public, unfortunately. The um, time that, you know, a researcher needs help to me being able to go into the archive to get information has, which usually would only take a couple hours, now only it now takes a couple weeks because I'm only on site once a week. But with work from home, I've been able to pivot a lot of more digital work, like building out a web archiving program and creating digital exhibits. Um, also, a lot of like in-person projects have now become virtual. Like I'm helping to support a oral history and we're now doing it through Zoom. And unlike Erica, who who really has to do a lot of instruction, I mean, I mainly work with like class presentations. So rather than it being in person, I'm now doing like PowerPoint presentations. One of the most fortunate uh, scenarios that have happened that I know a lot of my colleagues at other institutions haven't been able to do is I've been fortunate enough to retain student workers and have them work remotely. So I've been able to supervise my students in doing like database uh, cleanup in the back end. And that has made me feel really, you know, happy to know that my, my student workers can still have a job and that there's some normalcy uh, in their life when working with me. Well, that's interesting to hear. I, I, I would love to know the perspective of those students as as well have you, you must have become a sort of a uh, somebody who helps them cope a little bit you're their yeah. person yeah. what are those conversations like yeah definitely I be, I definitely become a sounding board of mm. of I, I'm not I'm considered a supervisor but I'm not considered sort of faculty where I think they're more open to telling me the the struggles that they have and and how tired they are um, with like online classes or hybrid scenarios that they feel much tired and overwhelmed by by their work. Um, but also I think that a lot of my students um, find comfort in a lot of their work for me is repetitive. So they kind of enjoy the monotonous kind of numbing. They get to watch TV while we're like doing data cleanup for me. Um, but yeah, they, they've definitely been more open about how they're feeling and how stressed they are. Um, you know, I have a really blanket sort of policy of, you know, just be honest, if you don't feel like working, you know, if classes are getting too tough, just let me know and you don't have to, you don't have to work your hours.
A couple things in, in what you said. First of all, when you're describing the exhibit opening, I actually got a little excited at first. Like, oh, wow, a new exhibit. I, I just, just how so many of us are wired and, and the letdown of that. And we've heard, we've all heard so many stories of projects that people had worked, books coming out, plays opening, exhibits opening, um, lectures to give, whatever it may be, things in the sort of broader, you know, academic or arts space that got shut down in, in March. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Would, could you tell us a little bit about um, the collection, just so people get a sense of the kinds of things people look for in the research collection uh, there at, at Villanova, Baudry? Yeah. The University Archives, we um, have a huge photo collection of the history of Villanova. We have the entire um, run of the student newspapers, as well as like administrative records. In addition, we have um, a lot of the nursing school old uh, syllabus and course material, as well as the engineering department. So most of our research questions sort of pertain, uh, pertain to like the history of higher education or, you know, the student experience in the past. Uh Thanks for that. And as a person who's co-edited a, a book uh, on the history of higher ed, I did one about Drexel. Um, the role of someone in your position with us, kind of archival material, like you can't really tell the history of an institution without that. Without that, let's um, let's turn a little bit to the project you've been working on about documenting the pandemic. And Erica, let me start from you. I'd like to hear from both of you on it. Just what gave you the inspiration to create a documenting COVID-19 project? How did you plan it? And here, you know, kind of some of the parameters of it, Erica? Yeah, so actually I would say that Beaudry um, had thought of this uh, with the LePage Center um, and then brought me in uh, to the project later. But um, I think that generally we were both thinking that, you know, this is a this is a historical moment in time. We need to be collecting stories and experiences from the Villanova community um, throughout the pandemic and uh, think about what types of items we want to collect. And so together we worked um, with our library technology department to set up a form so that students and faculty could submit their stories. Uh, so right now we're collecting essays, poems, uh, journal entry type reflections, uh, students, Pro class projects, photographs, or any artwork that they want to submit during this time. Uh, Baudry, just bring you in on this as well. What was the uh, initial idea there? I suppose, based on what you were saying earlier, it's you're in this constant conversation with history and history's un unfolding, Erica, as Erica said, it's a historic moment in time. Can you say a little bit more about your early thinking on the project? Yeah, so I would say late February of last year, early March, when it really felt like COVID was on our doorstep, I would say, where this was really affecting the Villanova community. I had started um, uh, scoping out a way to crawl Twitter tweets you know, Twitter and the tweets of like, you know, how is the Villanova community uh, communicating this? And what is, what's happening there? Um, as well as kind of 
you know, gathering all sort of the administrative correspondence and memos that were going out. But it was very ad hoc. It was very like in the moment happening. It wasn't really formalized. And it was actually in conversations with the former director, Jason Steinhauer of the LePage Center, where we really like started talking about like having a really formal approach to collecting. And and himself as a historian really knew the importance of collecting this material. And as we were talking, I really wanted this project to be a way for the Villanova community. And when I say the Villanova community is we wanted it to be open to students, faculty, staff, and alumni to be able to share their story, but share their story in the way that they want to share it. So have a way to create this project where people can submit things that aren't like required parameters, that they can submit whatever they feel is important to them to share this experience. And, and sort of that kind of kicked off this this project and and when we had Erica join us, we we thought about it in a more formal way and then also sort of have a two-phased approach to this is that right now we'll collect, we'll collect amidst this moment. And then hopefully when we can see COVID behind us and and we're vaccinated and and there's some sort of normalcy at least return to campus is that we would then create an oral history project mm -hmm. and that we would talk to people who were willing, who submitted and willing to do oral histories, bring them in to um, expand upon their experiences. That's interesting. So you, you created a portal which allowed people to contribute whatever they felt like they could contribute in the moment. And I want to hear um, in a minute about some of the types of things people have contributed. But it's also, in a sense, a kind of down payment on a future conversation, you hope? We hope, yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we, are, we are also um, scraping these tweets, uh, for, you know, with any, you know, phrasing with Villanova COVID-19 mentions um, in, in the events that future researchers of Villanova may want to use this data for analysis as well. Um, so we're, we're thinking of potential digital projects that faculty may want to work on or contribute to um, using this mater these materials that we're collecting. It's, you know, we, I've talked with so many guests about COVID-19 and even come back to our initial conversation just about where you were calling from, uh, about how variable the experience has, is. So we talk about a global pandemic, but of course it's experienced locally and sometimes it's experienced hyper-locally. I want to let me just pause here for a second and ask you if you might um, tell us a little bit about how you think the Villanova experience might be different from other universities, um, the types of things that might, you know, people there might be um, issues they might be engaged with or, you know, things they're pointing out that you think could be. I'm sure there'll be a lot of similarities across colleges, but I'm also curious, like, what's unique about the Villanova community in this regard? Maybe Erica, can I start with you on that? Um, well, actually, I was gonna I was gonna pass this question off to okay, Rodri because I think she has a um, little bit more interest in this area. Rodri, yeah. what do you what do you think? Yeah, what I would say is actually what makes Villanova unique, especially for this area. And I like that you said like hyper localized. Is what's unique about Villanova is we are also a nursing school. Then Louise Fitzpatrick College of Nursing. 
um, has students, alumni, and faculty all as frontline workers, as well as they have been instrumental in Pennsylvania state and city planning for Philadelphia of the pandemic since the very beginning. So that's already that's uh, interesting history and narratives that most universities wouldn't have unless they have a nursing school. And um, which we've been able to develop a relationship with the nursing school that they are um, really open and willing to participate in the oral history phase of this. Um, so I think that's what's unique about Villanova, but I think about like the student footprint of Villanova is our student population is, is quite small. Our students, the majority um, live on campus. Mm -hmm. So from year one to year four, when you graduate, you actually can live on campus, which is which is kind of a unique situation. So, so the student experience is really living in a pandemic in a dorm room. Mm -hmm. And they've been there the entire time or they went away and have returned? They went away in the spring of 2020, uh, in March. They returned for fall semester and they're here for spring semester. I see. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting too, because so many universities, Drexel University being one of them, many others, um, have really stayed away from bringing the undergraduates mm -hmm. mostly on campus. So that's interesting. I mean, um, their own experience of having a really tight knit local community being disrupted and then brought back together, but still separated mm -hmm. um, must be something you hear a lot about. And then um, the allied health professions right now, um, people who are training in that space, I can only imagine mm -hmm. what they must be feeling if it were me, it'd be a mixture of a, a sense of purpose, but also great fear um, and perhaps some anger thrown in there as well. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about the kinds of things people have contributed um, so far. I, maybe, I don't know who would like to, to start, but some things you've seen that really um, caught your attention or types of things that you're having to accommodate um, bringing into the archive. I always think about projects like this and people contribute unconventional things. Um, back in the old days when you could go to a physical archive, um, I remember going to an archive and Pittsburgh once at Carnegie Mellon and uh, asking for uh, uh, the, the box description was interesting. And I asked for the box and they brought the box and I opened it and it was a piece of, it was a machine. And so like, you never know quite what you're, what you're going to get, but you're having to accommodate whatever people are going to give you in the digital space. Erica, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're actually collecting? Yeah, so I think um, in terms of more of the unconventional submissions, and sorry, my cat has decided to cry right now. Um, in the background. Um, all, but, are, all are welcome. <laughs> um, but speaking of some of the more unconventional submissions, the artwork, I, um, I believe Bodri can speak to that a little bit more than me because she's been there to collect those items. But um, some of the stories that have been submitted that we've read through have just been incredibly heartbreaking. Um, so last May, um, there was a lot of graduating seniors that submitted their stories about not being able to celebrate, you know, with their family and friends. And, you know, that's a, a big moment in their lives, graduating from college and having to attend it virtually is not ideal. And so that's been incredibly heartbreaking to read those stories. Um, and then also, uh, you know, there have also been some other stories that have just been so sad to read 
Um, so, for example, there was one story by an Asian American student who was afraid to leave her home in Philadelphia, you know, due to hate crimes, racism, and violence against Asian Americans during the pandemic um, that, you know, has gone viral on social media. And so just reading that story and that experience, I wanted to cry, honestly. Thank you so. for sharing that. Baudry, your reflections as well on the kind of things that you're seeing come through. Um, one of the surprising things that I've noticed is unprompted, um, most of our submissions have been um, sort of like journal entries. And the journal entries are the, the day the university shut down and the experience of what that, that day, March 13th, meant to people. And it, it's really interesting in, in see, like reading about, you know, the, the fear and, and sort of kind of like not understanding what the next steps are. Um, but then we also get a lot of like uh, submissions of like photographs of people wearing their masks, in, like living life wearing their masks, you know, or, or photographs of pictures of their neighborhood and what it looks like and how it's changed. Um, we got one submission where this person sent us photos of a like the like the local basketball court and to maintain social distancing they um they like took wood and they nailed wood against the hoops so you couldn't get the ball through and so it was really interesting to see sort of these these little missed moments and moments that you know we might forget about in the future of like this is what sort of policies were I would also say kind of like for levity, some of the unique items that we've also collected is uh, like Villanova branded masks and Villanova sent all our students uh, lawn chairs so that they could socially distance um, outside during fall semester. And so we've gotten a chair to <laughs> to, to represent there you that. There go, the future researcher who has to open the box with the like, chair yeah, inside. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, I wonder, too, about the kind of, of echoes you see in these materials that may reverberate a bit through the collection. Mm -hmm. um, things maybe from World War II or Vietnam era, previous pandemics, 1918. How are the, the COVID materials, I know it's too early to say definitively, but how are these in conversation with other materials that already exist in the, in the collection, Baudry? Well, what's actually interesting about this project in particular for Villanova is this is the first project of its kind for Villanova. Falvey Memorial Library has never had a call out or a collection policy to seek student related material. So this has been an opportunity to get the student experience in the archives. So as you mentioned, you know, World War One and World War Two, we have a rich collection of, you know, the NR. OTC program on campus, our administrative response to World War One and World War Two. We have our administrative response to the influenza pandemic of 1918, but we actually don't have a lot of material about how did faculty respond? How did students respond? How did families who have their children and their like friends on campus. So this is actually kind of the first of its kind for for our archives. I find that really fascinating um, it, because this is not, of course, not the first disaster that 
colleges and universities have faced, you know, it's named several um, just now, but actively seeking the community, the faculty, staff, student, and alumni perspective. I'm hearing this uh, across, I mean, you're, I'm thrilled by the project you're doing and, it, and it's very much in conversation with similar projects that other institutions are doing, not all in higher ed, but many in higher ed. And it seems that it was um, a matter of not very long deliberation, that people were sort of prepared for the idea, we need to collect these responses. That seems different somehow from how people have faced this, these types of um, disasters in the past. I'm, I'm asking you to speculate here, but Erica, let me bring you on, in on this first. Why do you think it's succeeding? I mean, why are, we, why are we collecting all this now, but we didn't in the 1940s or in 1918? And, Maybe the digital is a clue, but I'm not sure that's the full answer. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think uh, I, th I think that right now people want to have a voice. People want to be able to express mm. their experiences. And so um, I think that our collection efforts, you know, are working and we're getting um, lots of submissions, particularly right now, because people are isolated and they want to be able to share their stories. So I would say I think that's why it's a success right now. Um, Beaudry, feel free to jump in. <laughs> yeah, um, I think one of the important things to mention is traditionally archivists receive material of an event like 20 years after the fact. Right. And within the last decade, this has changed because of our cultural shifts in, and like you said, communication and technology, as well as our socio-political interpretation of what voices deserve to be preserved. You know, we're now reinterpreting what should be collected and, and what we're seeing in sort of this postmodern um, philosophy is all voices matter. And so there's this greater drive to collect marginalized groups and understand that those voices are at risk. And then we're also facing climate change where our sites of records are at risk, where, you know, libraries, archives, you know, just basic office buildings. So it kind of amplifies this huger situation that now archivists are really looking about collecting within the moment. And, and I think COVID in particular is why we feel, I would say, ready, is I think because in the last several years we've been doing it already, that we've already know how imperative it is to collect in the moment. Like for example, the 2016 election, you know, we knew that a lot of information was going to be shut down on these federal websites. And there was a huge initiative by archivists to collect that material. And I think that that sort of that drive is sort of an undercurrent in our field and continues today. Do you think that's something that is um, actually so I really like the way you frame that, first of all, I mean, that in an era of climate change in which the collections themselves are obviously under threat, mm -hmm. but also a time in which um, a wider variety of voices are entering the conversation, the historical conversation, those trends are happening. But there's something interesting there in what you said. I mean, is this also part of the way archivists 
across the board. Your, your colleagues in other institutions, even those who are outside of higher ed, are they engaged in this as well? You think they would share that perspective? So I th I, it all really determines on sort of an institution's mission and priorities. That's one thing that sort of holds back an archivist of, you know, the desire to collect everything is, is also we really have to think about like the mission of the archive and the mission of Villanova's archive is to be a representation of our community. As much as I would like to archive every aspect of what's happening in Philadelphia and the Black Lives Movement, the mission of my archive is the Villanova experience to that. And so I'm collecting towards that information because that's the mission of this archive. So the implications for digital scholarship then, Erica, are pretty, uh, pretty serious because if this is actually now maybe perhaps a turning point in how archives conceptualize themselves, how libraries conceptualize themselves, there's going to be a lot more emphasis on the kind of work you do, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I think that's why Beaudry and I have, you know, partnered together because she's thinking about, you know, the archive and the mission of the university. And I'm thinking about how we can, you know, take these digital archives and, you know, disseminate them to the community and make them available for future research. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and today I'm talking about documenting COVID-19, a project at Villanova University with Beaudry Ray Allen and Erica Hayes, and this is part of the partnership between COVID Calls and the LePage Center. And um, let me just follow up, Beaudry, on something that you said a minute ago, too, and I know you've been involved in an archiving uh, Black Lives uh, project in the greater Philadelphia region. Can you speak to that? a little bit uh, as a theme uh, that may have emerged in some of the things people are contributing, but also more broadly about, um, you know, this is a disaster with multiple different converging pieces. It's not just a pandemic. It's also um, an economic disaster. It's also a racial justice disaster and reckoning as well. Yeah. It's complicated. There are a lot of different vantage points to try to collect, but also Back to something you said a minute ago, it seems, um, well, the stakes are raised for everyone who's in the business of trying to keep this moment alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think you kind of touched upon it perfectly, is, is all of this is interconnected and all of this is influenced by each other. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic crisis and a political crisis simultaneously. Like, how do you just say, COVID-19 pandemic without expressing the, the social justice movement that has skyrocketed within 2020, as well as we have to look at the crisis of, of class and, and, and like the financial situations and implications of the policies in which people are losing their homes, as well as 
you know, thinking about this too is, you know, it's not my job to sort of define what COVID-19 means. My job is to, to help collect it and organize it for, for historians and researchers to make the definition and to sort of interpret what, what happened and what is happening. Um, so my philosophy is, is that everything is interconnected and, and everything is, it feeds off of each other. So it's really hard to say that, you know, the mission of this project, while it's COVID-19, it's whatever is happening in 2020 is affected by COVID-19 and therefore, you know, can be submitted. Uh, let me just turn for a second to a theme that I've heard a lot of, uh, in talking with other librarians and archivists at this time. Erica, to you first on this. Um, the problem of uh, libraries always being spaces that are um, heavily used and often forgotten, uh, unfortunately, under-resourced, um, and then all of a sudden now, also we need you to digitize everything and can you do that by yesterday? Um, there are a lot of pressure points on campuses. Libraries, I think, are, are often one of the worst of those. Um, I'm not asking you to complain about Villanova or any other place, but I'm curious about sort of the challenge of that and how you see that going forward, because I don't think we're going back in many, many ways to the way higher ed looked before March of 2020. So how are you going to adapt the work you do? How do you think more generally the kind of work um, that you do in libraries generally is going to change going forward? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, I think there's a lot of pressures on libraries to, to digitize everything and to, you know, you know, think about what, what is going to be the future needs of our, our researchers. And so a lot of it for us is our mission is the Villanova community. So it's thinking about, you know, institutional memory and, you know, what is going to be of value to our researchers. And so we have to think about those things in our collection efforts. Um, and then in terms of terms of my role where I am, you know, teaching a lot of digital workshops, um, you know, my, my teaching has changed drastically. I've had to, you know, normally when I would be teaching like some programming languages like R or Python uh, in, in person and be able to troubleshoot, uh, you know, with the students on their computers together in person, I can no longer do that. So now a lot of what I'm doing is running workshops online and then I'm setting up consultations afterwards to troubleshoot one-on-one -on -one with students. And so my teaching has changed drastically. Um, and so there's those types of things that we're thinking about um, as instruction librarians, as well as you know, librarians who are collecting archival materials and digitizing them and thinking about, you know, how they're going to be used in the future. So lots of things are changing and we have a lot of pressures on us, but I think that we're all, we're all doing the best we can. Do you think students rely on you less now or more and just differently? I mean, it, even the way you just described being a person, somebody could expect they could just walk into one of your workshops and know nothing and you're sort of there to walk them through it. It's a very different experience when they're wherever they are. It may be in their dorm room, but maybe not somewhere else. And you have to try to counsel them virtually. Yeah. So it's not as serendipitous, um, you know, in this experience, you know, it's more 
setting up an appointment and having, you know, a plan in mind and having them send me, you know, any questions that they might have in advance uh, so that I can prep, uh, you know, to present this material uh, online. And so that's some of the different experiences that I've had versus where, you know, I'd be in a computer lab, you know, on campus and a student could walk in or a student uh, could hear at the reference desk that I'm available in my office, come find me. And then we can just talk through the issues together and I could work with you know, that student on their computer, I can't do that anymore, you know, working remotely. So everything is definitely not as serendipitous as it used to be. The serendipity may be gone, but the workload is, is still there. How do you keep track of those two different modes? In other words, how do you make sense of the amount of work you're doing now versus what you were doing before? Um, yeah, it's, it's a balancing act, I would say. Um, I mean, the workload hasn't decreased at all. In fact, I think it's, it's increased even more. Um, but I, it's, it's managing your calendar and your time. Uh, and, there, and there is only so much that you can do, I would say. So you try and fit in as, as many consultations and instruction sessions as you can. So just to come back to something, Baudry, you were talking about the um, imperative of collecting at this time. I was really taken with that and particularly the climate change aspect of that, the pressures on collections. Um, I mean, there's a normal pressures on collections from just wear and tear, use or facilities, um, you know, maintenance and deferred maintenance and all those sort of normal things. And now we have climate change. Talk a little bit about um, some of the special challenges that you see with this collection that you're putting together, this documenting COVID-19 collection. Yeah, for particular for COVID-19, our, our preservation concern is really, it is a deluge of, of, of information, of, of digital data. And what we have to think about is long-term storage digitally and the preservation of that and making sure that we monitor it in a way that we can keep the material accessible, which may require us, you know, to migrate and normalize and change formats to the material that is donated to us. So one of the big challenges is really the commitment of, of long-term preservation in the digital world, it, ensuring that we have the storage and and the buy-in from you know library the university that there's a commitment uh, of this of this digital storage. Um, I think to kind of touch upon the question that you asked, Erica is like, and I think that's the biggest fear for archivists collecting COVID nineteen is is it's it's fo it's a focus and it's a priority for libraries and archives now, but when we return to sort of physically in person, you know, are the priorities going to change? And is there going to be the same significant financial care to collecting this type of material and preserving this type of material? Another concern, particularly for preservation of COVID, is we're really dealing with, with health information. And we have to be very careful of the considerations of, you know, institutional policy, federal health policy to ensure that information is not personally identifiable. And so that's something that we always have to like, you know, 
as an archivist, this kind of requires us to review material in a more particular way, like with a mm-hmm. you know fine comb rather than opposed to, okay, we've amassed this, we can put it in a box and people can look through it. That really uh, uh, strikes a chord with me because, um, you know, up until recently I was professor at Drexel. I was there for 20 years and I had integrated um, oral history projects into a lot of my classes. Um, and much to the consternation sometimes of uh, my friend and colleague Matthew Lyons, who's the archivist there at Drexel, I sometimes would forget to tell him, I would be two or three weeks into the thing and say, oh, by the way, Matthew, I'm doing this thing. And he's, I could hear, I could sort of feel him saying, oh, I wonder if Professor Knowles has thought about you know, the kinds of questions he can ask and how I'm going to receive the material. Sometimes professors just charge right in. And of course, COVID, the imperative has been speed, as you said. And this issue that you just raised really is, is right on the knife's edge because you want to collect. So I collected students' um, just personal um, remembrances of that time. And they want, they talk, we're talking about a pandemic. So we're talking about health. The whole conversation is about health. And we had some really interesting conversations about how they could interview family members or interview a roommate um, and and talk about the pandemic without finding out specific medical information that we weren't looking for that. I, you must have been counseling. I mean, this must be part of what you're you're dealing with as well, because there are boundaries of what you mm-hmm. can collect right now. I mean, if you went through an IRB process, you could collect that kind of information, but that's more what a public health school is doing and not what the archives are doing. How have you managed some of that nuance, Baudry? Um, you know, because we allow like submitters to um, provide materials with without much, you know, guidance, it is it does require us to review and then restrict those items, that those items just will not be publicly accessible or that will restrict it. Especially with the project I'm doing with Erica with the the tweets is that we are going to, you know, go through and remove those ID, those points of information and have that, you know, um, restricted. Um, and we have kind of like a little check, check mark in, in our submission that like that submitters do recognize that, you know, the material that they're giving is is going to be made public. So we hope that that sort of gives people pause to think about what they're actually going to submit. It's probably something most people who've not done this kind of work have considered. It, you, you, there's a tension in archiving and scholarship generally. You want all of it, but you can't take all of it, number one, for logistical purposes, but also there's just parameters around privacy and access to things that you have to be the person that makes those very hard decisions. We have, we're almost up on time with this um, uh, episode of COVID Calls, but I wanted to just turn to one more thing, get you, we already were touching on it a little bit, and even the title of your project, you know, documenting COVID-19, I feel like right now that's like documenting much more than COVID-19. And so in what sense do we imagine going back to something that's normal? I don't know what that even means at this point. But one thing is for certain is you've accumulated a lot, of, a lot of knowledge in your practice right now that's probably going to affect the way you teach in the future, the way you train your staffs. 
Um, maybe you haven't thought about this too much yet, but I wonder if you could share any insights right now, things that you've learned through this pandemic period that you think should become part of instruction in your field going forward. Maybe there were things that people are, I'll give you an example from history. Um, in history, we have to learn how to collaborate with each other. The whole historical profession is moving, not all, but some, away from individual projects where the scholar goes into an archive alone and comes out with a manuscript. I don't think we're going back to that um, after. We have to do distanced collaborative projects, and that's going to be a real learning curve in graduate programs. Erica, just to you first on this, some things you've learned that you think are really going to shape education in the space in which you're an expert. Yeah, so I think, um, like you were mentioning about collaboration, I think that's going to be key. I think we're going to see a lot more um, collaboration, annotation tools for, for research in the future. I think, um, you know, sharing more tutorials and making them openly available online. I think we're going to see a lot more open open educational resources uh, in the future so that, you know, students and faculty can have that available to them from wherever they are. Um, in terms of, you know, archival materials, I think, you know, we're, we're digitizing a lot more, um, you know, in, so that we can share resources and we can have access to these materials, especially in time in times like like this right now. Baudry, the last word to you on this, you know, how is archiving education going to change? Um, you know, I, I would say is that archival education, primary source literacy, the use of the archives for education is, I think we were already on a trajectory of really exposing the archives as a site of power and, and how do we d dismantle white supremacy and reevaluate um, description and analysis? And I think COVID-19 sort of pushes forward this, this sort of allowance of more voices to be in the archives. And I think this sort of becomes an opportunity to have more discussions about that. And I think this also sort of raises theoretical questions to students it is, is the practices of collecting and the, the practice of collecting trauma. Like, what does that mean? And, and the questions of like exploitation and commodifying trauma, like, you know, what is, what should be collected during this time in the archives about this experience? Well, I think I've heard from others who um, are in the library and archiving world about a sort of a soul search in the profession itself about diversity in the profession mm -hmm. and trying to actively pursue that. And that's, I speak for higher ed more generally, I think that's a conversation um, that hopefully will be more than a conversation, but will translate to action uh, as, as soon as possible. I've learned a lot in this hour. Thank you so much to both of you um, for sharing this time, but also for the work that you're doing. And I'm sure that um, uh, people who are doing the kind of work that you do in other higher ed institutions, if they haven't started a project like this, you've made it sound challenging, but also rewarding and given some tips. And I hope other people will pick it up and do it as well. I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, except for tomorrow, uh, starting to do some COVID calls episodes about once a week right now uh, on Korea time. 
And so the Friday episode, my discussion about COVID and mental health in Turkey with Singiz Kilik will take place at 5 p.m. Uh, Korea time Friday, which is 3 a.m. Eastern time. So some people who are late night owls or early morning risers might catch that. But of course, you can always catch COVID calls later on any of the podcasting platforms that you listen to. And you can always watch it later live on Periscope or YouTube Live or Twitch or anywhere else to catch these kind of videos. So we'll look forward to seeing you with that. And we will see everybody Monday right back at 5 p.m. Eastern time for a continuation of a discussion uh, with LePage Award winners. And I have Jessica Martucci and Britt Dahlberg on Monday. And then a quick plug that on Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time, I will be talking to Princeton University historian Kevin Cruz. So please put that in your calendar. And I want to thank again my guests, Erica Hayes and Beaudry Ray Allen. Thanks a million for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We will see you on Monday at 5 o'clock. And we'll see you a little bit later today on Korea time.